Hello and welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook. Every two weeks, experts from AMBOSS, the medical education platform, interview medical students and healthcare professionals to showcase international perspectives on everything in medical school and beyond the textbook. Hello and welcome back to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook. I'm your host, Dr. Tanner Schrank, and today we're continuing our interview with Dr. Ralph Yusefovich from the University of Rochester in New York. Before we jump in to continue the interview, we have the AMBOSS question of the day. You'll get the question at the beginning of the episode and the answer at the end, along with a book recommendation and a fun fact. So the question is from the step one study plan on the AMBOSS platform, specifically the 200 concepts that appear in every Step 1 exam. A 60-year-old man comes to the physician because his wife has noticed that his left eye looks smaller than his right. He has had worsening left shoulder and arm pain for three months. He has smoked two packs of cigarettes a day for 35 years. Exam shows left-sided ptosis. The pupils are unequal but reactive to light. When measured in dim light, the left pupil is 3 millimeters and the right pupil is 5 millimeters. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's symptoms? A. Thrombosis of the cavernous sinus. B. Aneurysm of the posterior cerebral artery. C. Infarction of the hypothalamus. D. Dissection of the carotid artery. E. Compression of the stellate ganglion. Or F. Infiltration of the cervical plexus. Stay tuned until the end to find out the answer. Let's jump in to continue the interview. So for many international medical students, they aspire to obtain residency positions in the U.S. Is there any different advice you would give to them to navigate the process of applying to and succeeding in U.S. residency programs? Well, yes. If you look at the statistics, and I recently reviewed the statistics from the match, About 25% of U.S. residency positions are filled by international graduates because there are more residency positions than there are graduates from U.S. medical schools. So this basically means that there is an opportunity for international graduates to get residencies. Now, some residencies are more competitive than others. So a lot of the surgical subspecialties are very competitive, but specialties such as internal medicine, family medicine, psychiatry, neurology, pediatrics, and even general surgery are less competitive. So what do you need to do as an international graduate to ensure that you get a good residency in the U.S. or Canada? Well, the application basically consists of your U.S. Emily step scores. Step one is now pass-fail, which is good for students in medical schools, but not for residency programs, which basically means that you need to take step two and you need to have a good score. It has to be at least the U.S. average or even higher. Mm-hmm. Secondly, failures on U.S. MLE are not very good. For example, in my program, we will not look at an applicant who failed any of the steps or who basically eked out a passing score. Now, why is that? Well, the way residency programs are evaluated in the United States is on first-time board pass rates. And the best predictor of how you do on standardized tests is how you do on standardized tests. And I can't afford to have any of my residents fail the neurology board exams. And by looking at their step scores, this basically ensures they'll pass. Mm -hmm. The second thing is you need good grades in your clinical clerkships. And 
This is basically reflected in the transcript as well as in the medical school performance evaluation, the so-called dean's letter. I do know that Yaglonian University provides very good dean's letters, and I have to say that of the international graduates who apply to our program, we get very good dean's letters from international schools. Then there's the personal statement. Well, basically, I think the personal statement should explain why you want to go into the specialty or if there are any irregularities in your application to explain them. But it should be very well written. It should be short and to the point and make sure it's grammatically correct with no spelling errors. And you want to make sure that several people read it, including non-medical types who are very good in English. You don't want dangling participles, misplaced modifiers, spelling errors, incomplete sentences, etc. And why? Well, I think the way you speak and the way you communicate in writing and verbally is a good indication of basically your knowledge base. And it's just that simple. So those are some of the important things. What about the role of research? Well, it depends on the specialty. Certain specialties, surgical specialties, for example, require research. Other specialties don't necessarily require it. However, if an applicant has no research at all, this might indicate that they're not curious. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's always good to have some research, but you shouldn't just do research to check a box. Basically, it should be something you're passionate about. And I think that's very important. Mm -hmm. And then letters of recommendation. You should have three or four letters from people who know you. And I think that's very important. And then most important, you really need to have several months of clinical rotations in the United States or Canada. I actually think that most residency programs in the U.S. will not accept an international graduate who hasn't had some experience in the U.S. and Canada. And how much is necessary? I think at least two months. New York State, as you know, has a three-month rule that if you do more than three months of required clinical rotations outside of the country for medical school, you won't be eligible for residency or for a license to practice. Other states are different. Mm -hmm. But I think these things are important. Because the individuals that you work with could then write letters of recommendation for you. Yeah. But the other thing is the photo. You have to submit a photograph. Make sure it's a professional photograph. You're groomed properly. You got a haircut. You shaved. You're wearing a tie if you're a male. You dressed appropriately if you're a woman. It's very important. People make impressions and decisions based on how you look. If it looks like it's a mugshot from a police lineup which I've seen a lot of international pictures like that, that turns you off. I'm sorry. And so take pride in how you present yourself. And then for the interview, when you're offered an interview, you want to basically accept it and be prepared. Do your homework. Read about the program. Find out who's interviewing you. Read about those individuals. Be attentive. Always have questions prepared and have good questions prepared. Things like, What advice do you have for me as an applicant to a residency program? What are you most proud of, of your department? Those are the type of questions as opposed to what's wrong with the program. They don't actually ask that, but they sort of fish around it. And don't ask pedantic questions of the program director, like the call schedules. You can get that information from the residents and that's all on the website. So that's basically it. You know, I think the three things in life that you need to be successful are focus, communication skills, and mentorship. Mm -hmm. And the focus is so important. If you're really focused on a certain specialty, you'll probably be successful. 
and communication, you have to learn how to speak well, write well, and convince people to support you. That's so important. And then mentorship, surround yourself by people who will help you and recognize and avoid narcissists mm -hmm. because they never will. Those are the three key things for success, focus, communication skills, and mentorship. Wow. That's really, really good advice. I really appreciate that you laid it out so clearly. You know, you can sum it all up as like put your best foot forward with the photo, with the personal statement, paying attention to detail, but it's also really helpful to get actionable advice. How do I write a good personal statement? Well, have it double-checked by people who are good at writing. That's really helpful, I think. And to continue the last point that you made, mentorship. This plays a crucial role in medical education. Can you share any thoughts on how students can find and build relationships with mentors? Yeah, well, mentorship is a two-way street. What is a mentor? A mentor is someone who likes you and someone who won't offend you if he or she tells you you're screwing up. That's basically it. And it doesn't have to be someone necessarily in your field. And we all are mentors. So, you know, as a student, you're also probably mentoring individuals and, and it's a two-way street. But how to find a mentor? Well, if there's a person that you feel connected to, someone who really cares about you, you could ask them, but you know, the mentor is not going to tell you what to do. A mentor opens doors, but you have to go through the door. I've had two very important mentors in my life. They were both my former chairs, Dr. Bob Joint and Birch Griggs at the University of Rochester. And essentially, they would open a door for me. They would introduce someone to me, but it was up to me to go through. In fact, Birch Griggs, once I told him I needed a mentor, and he said, you're your own mentor, <laughs> because I was pioneering a field of medical education that no one was doing at that time. In order to be successful in academics, you had to do research and get grants, and I didn't do that. <laughs> but I knew what I wanted to do, and I basically found a way to do it. I mentor a lot of people, but what I do is I listen to them, and I ask them questions. And I might point out some people they might want to meet, and I give them a pep talk. I sort of make them enthusiastic about what they want to do. But it's really up to you. No one is going to make you successful. But the successful people are the ones who basically know what they want to do. And I've met a lot of junior people, even students here at Yagalonian, who I know are going to be extremely successful, just the way they present themselves, the way they speak their focus in what they want to achieve in life. Whereas I meet some students who say, well, I really don't know what I want to do. Well, if you don't know what you want to do, you're never going to achieve anything. Then you need to do a good, solid thought about, is this the right field for you? Mm -hmm. No mentor can do self-reflection for you. So looking to the future, medical education and technology are rapidly changing to address new issues and developments. One example would be telemedicine during the COVID pandemic. So last year, you co-authored a paper answering the question, how to continue international medical exchange programs during lockdown. Could you tell me a little bit about how neurology shifted to continue during the pandemic? Well, obviously, we did resort to clinically telemedicine for a brief period of time. I did a few telemedicine patient visits, but I don't like telemedicine. I like seeing patients. Mm -hmm. But Essentially, it's pretty natural if you see the patient on the screen, you could do part of the neurologic examination on it, 
not the entire exam, but a lot of neurology is based on history. So I really feel that you cannot do new patient evaluations via telemedicine, but you could certainly do follow-up visits for patients you know. For example, patients with migraine, patients with seizure disorders, because in a lot of these cases, the examinations are typically normal and it's mainly taking a good history. But I prefer seeing patients in person. And the other thing is for some patients, they take telemedicine visits very seriously, but for other patients, they don't. They forget to call in. When they call in, you know, they're, they might be cooking in the kitchen and that's inappropriate. I mean, it's really disrespectful. If you have a telemedicine visit, it should be the same as seeing the physician in person. You should be attentive, you should be thoughtful, and you should be ready. As far as teaching goes, we did have to shift. For example, with Spain, we could not go to Spain to teach the two-week neuroscience elective, so one of my chief residents and I did it virtually, and we did all the lectures and the case studies virtually. And we had about 80 students tuning in between 8 and 10 p.m. Spain time because our lectures were very good. But it's not the same. And in Rochester, for our whole year for our mind-brain behavior course, all the lectures were done live but virtually. We did the small groups in person and the labs in person, but it really was very difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm used to doing it because I've done many of these lectures virtually, and it becomes natural after about five minutes but you don't get the interaction from the students. Yeah. I do a lot of chalk talks and I like having the lights on so I could see the students and basically monitor my lecture based on if the students are getting the information and you really don't get that. And for some students, I call it a pajama curriculum. <laughs> you know, they wake up in the morning with the pajamas, turn on the computer and kind of zoom through things. Mm -hmm. That is lazy. That's a lack of professionalism. So I would say, get your butts out of bed, get dressed and get into the classroom on time. Yeah. And the students didn't like the lectures either because they like to socialize with one another. They like to see each other. Mm -hmm. So from an educational standpoint, this flipped classroom thing where you sort of pre-record something the students look at and then the in-class experience is to delve further into topic works for certain things but not for other things. You can't tell a student, okay, why don't you learn about how the brain works by yourself and we'll talk about it. Yeah. You need a roadmap. You know, you're not going to learn how to drive a car if someone says, okay, just get into a car and drive by yourself and then we can meet up afterwards and I'll tell you what did wrong. Yeah. And I think the point about the pajama curriculum, it changes your mindset when you get up and you put on your clothes that you would wear to class or the hospital. You get into the same mindset you would as if you were in the classroom. It's kind of the same thing as when you leave a room and you forget everything because yeah. you cross that threshold. Mm -hmm. So you have to build in these thresholds. And it's harder with telemedicine and virtual learning, but mm -hmm. students can do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as we look to the future of neurology, do you think there's any exciting innovations or developments coming in the near future? Well, the big advance in neurology now is genetics. Mm. You know, in the last decade or so, it was immunology. When I was a resident, we had no effective treatments for multiple sclerosis other than steroids, which just were transient symptom improvement. But now we have over 15 immunomodulatory drugs that essentially have changed the whole face of multiple sclerosis, where it's a chronic condition that could be very well controlled for most patients. Now, it's all about genetics. For example, spinal muscular atrophies, especially the infantile form, was universally fatal. Now, we have some genetic manipulation that these children are living for years. Wow. 
we're developing these things for other muscular dystrophies, for myotonic dystrophy, maybe Duchenne dystrophy. It's a little complicated, but I think that's going to be a big breakthrough. The big problem is the cost. Mm-hmm. You know, for spinal muscular atrophy, one of the treatments costs $2 million, but it's given once. And when you think of the costs needed to take care of these individuals, it, that costs a lot of money too. And the drug companies say they invested a lot of research money. But hopefully, the cost will come down. It's like anything. It's like when flat screen TVs came out. They were extremely expensive. Now you could go get one for 75 bucks. Yeah, yeah. The prices come down. Or even, yeah. I remember when I was in college, I bought a calculator that just did basic functions for $150. Yeah. And now a computer for $150 does everything. Right. So we're all hoping that the cost will come down for some of these treatments. So that's going to be the next thing. Mm-hmm. But- The essence of medicine is still about history taking and examining patients and realizing that most diseases we really don't cure. We teach our patients how to manage the chronic diseases. Do we cure diabetes? Do we cure hypertension? Do we cure COPD? Do we cure epilepsy? Do we cure migraine? No, but we have effective treatments. And so that's the essence of being a doctor is basically working with your patients and teaching your patients how to manage the chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a hard pill to swallow, but I think students eventually have to grapple with the different meaning of healing. You're not healing your patients to be 100% fixed. It's coping and dealing with it and getting some relief. Exactly. So my last question is the same one I ask all of our guests. If you could give our listeners any advice beyond the textbook, what would you say? Well, I'll quote Bob Joint, who was our first chair. He had a statement that really pervades our department. He said, you can't always be right, but you can always be kind. It's all about kindness. Yeah, that's what our job is, is to listen to someone, be kind to them, take them into account, maybe walk a mile in their shoes and try to help how you can. Wow, that's really good advice. Once again, Dr. J, thank you so, so much for coming We wish you continued success in your work at the University of Rochester and in shaping the future of neurology. Thanks, Tanner. And now let's get the answer to the Amboss question from earlier. The key info was left shoulder and arm pain, as well as left-sided ptosis and pupils being unequal. The attending tip says Horner syndrome is a neurological disorder characterized by a symptom triad of meiosis, partial ptosis, and facial anhydrosis, of which this patient has the former two symptoms. In a heavy smoker, symptoms of Horner syndrome combined with ipsilateral shoulder and arm pain are concerning for a pancoast tumor. So you should have selected answer E, compression of the stellate ganglion. To learn more about Horner syndrome and other neurological disorders, check out the AMBOSS question bank and specifically these study plans on the AMBOSS platform. Your book recommendation for the week is The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle from 2009. It investigates the science behind talent development and provides practical advice on how to unlock your full potential through deep practice, correcting your mistakes, fostering a growth mindset, igniting your motivation to be better, and following through with master coaching. And finally, your fun medical fact of the day. Did you know? The fattiest organ in the human body, meaning the organ with the highest percent being fat, is the brain. 
The brain is made up of about 60% fat because the white matter, which connects gray matter and nourishes it, is made up of the lipid-rich or fatty substance that we all know as myelin. This protects and insulates the nerve cell axons and gives it its typical white color. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for more insightful episodes covering a wide range of medical topics. I'm Dr. Tanner Schrank, and this has been Beyond the Textbook. The links in the description can give you a more in-depth understanding of these concepts. If you like this episode, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out the AMBOSS platform for your medical studies and sign up for a free five-day trial at amboss.com.